My mommy always said there were no monsters, no real ones, but there are. Yes, there are, aren't there? Why do they tell little kids that? Most of the time it's true. Did one of those things grow inside her? I don't know, Newt. That's the truth. Isn't that how babies come? I mean, people babies, they go inside you. No, that's very different. Did you ever have a baby? Yes, I did. I had a little girl. Where is she? She's gone. You mean dead? Episode 67 of the Cult of Matt, Mark, Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. And make sure to visit us at our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. So uh, I'm in Hawaii right now, but uh, nobody knows this because uh, through the magic of the interwebs, we're recording this ahead of time. So Time is our bitch. Yes, we got to give uh, our fan base their weekly dose or they uh, start going through withdrawals. Oh, well, of course. Well, you know, dependability is the key to good podcasting. Sometimes I ask myself, why do I listen to that fucking Neanderthal uh, Adam Carolla every goddamn day? (laughs) You don't enjoy his uh, libertarian jags? It's just it's there every day. I mean, that is that is one of the keys. Just showing up every day is is almost worth more than actually putting out a good product. That's right. He has one of those uh, good libertarian work ethics, you know, the uh, 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 don't get me started about Adam Carolla. I like him. He's a funny <laughs> dude, but man, when he I starts like, I getting... like, I like him too, but uh, I, I, I would not want to work with that. SOB. I'll tell you oh that. My God. Well, and then when he starts going off on his uh, government's bad, taxes are terrible. Uh, I pay too many taxes kind of stuff. I just, I, I want to write some, uh, you know, email to him, but then I said, fuck it. And then uh, I just kind of uh, stomach it for the five minutes that he's ranting. And then I go on to the dick and fart jokes after that. So, you know, I just sometimes I just uh, depending on his um, his guess, I just fucking delete it when he starts going on a big rant. <laughs> I mean, well, it's fun not- making fun of lazy people and that's cool and everything. But yeah. uh, he's got a weird he's got a little bit of a skewed version sort of version of the world. He does, uh, but we're not going to go on a rant on today's podcast because we're going to be talking about James Cameron's Aliens, released in 1986, uh, starring Sigourney Weaver, and uh, Bill Paxson, I think, is probably the the second biggest heavy hitter f- uh, actor-wise to come out of this f- film, I would think, because Michael Bain kind of faded out. Paul Reiser, uh, he had his run there with uh, that sitcom. What the hell was that called? Mad about you, right? Yeah, mad about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also don't forget the the stellar career of uh, Carrie Hen, who was second build. <laughs> Carrie, Hen, the little girl. Yeah. Oh, what happened to her? She became a school teacher. Wow, that's uh, that's an exotic and thrilling career path. I oh, she wasn't. She wasn't a child actor. Uh, she was. Uh, she had the good fortune of being a uh, military brat stationed in. England at the time and I think part of they shot this movie in England and I think there was like a requirement that they use um, 
uh, residents of England for like a rather large percentage of the cast. And so uh, they just they found they were looking for kids in England. And so oh, they just found okay. her and she fit. Plot rundown. Uh, Sigourney Weaver returns as Ellen Ripley, the last surviving crew member of a corporate spaceship destroyed after an attack by a vicious, virtually unbeatable alien life form. Adrift in space for half a century, Ripley grapples with depression until she's informed by her company's representative, Carter Burke, played by Paul Reiser, that the planet where her crew discovered the alien has since been settled by colonists. Contact with the colony has suddenly been lost, and a detachment of colonial marines is being sent to investigate. Invited along as an advisor, Ripley predicts disaster, and sure enough, the aliens have infested the colony, leaving a sole survivor, the young girl Newt, played by Carrie Henn. With the soldiers picked off one by one, a final all-female showdown broods between the alien queen and Ripley, who's become a surrogate mother to Newt. So there you have it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that summary, you know, hones in on the core sort of motherhood ideal, I mean idea of the film. Yeah, it was kind of, uh, in the special edition, it's just dealt to you fairly uh, heavy-handedly, I would say. I, James Cameron was never really one for subtlety with his thematic this, elements. You know, watching this movie with a real critical eye this time, you really sort of realized, is for all the great you know cinematography instinct that Cameron has, uh, he's sort of ham-fisted when it comes Very to his storytelling. I mean, oh he just he spells it out for you. It's like reading a children's book, like uh, Avatar with uh, exploding aliens. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like Avatar, just darker and with more cuss words. Avatar, you're sort of punched in the face by this, uh, uh, I'd say, adolescent notion of uh, you know nature is good and the noble savage and everything like that, and that mankind and all his development is terrible. You know, I mean, just punched well, in the face. He's a great storyteller, but. He he's really just really great at telling these simple stories. And believe me, I enjoyed Avatar. I, I don't know if I'd watch it again. I mean, I might watch it again sometime if I could see it on like a my holographic TV in twenty years. I enjoyed, but, uh, but it was fun. It was a fun ride. Well, I enjoyed Avatar because as a fan of the Roger Dean album covers of Yes, uh, it's nice to see all those landscapes come to life. And I think it was sort of ripped off, and Roger Dean didn't ever get credit in in that film for the art direction or the production design but uh basically go pull out your dad's old yes album cover cover yes album uh lp all i have all i have is old big band uh records all right no no i'm talking for our listenership pull out those old uh yes albums and take a look and you'll see floating mountains and all kinds of uh crazy uh i forget what was pandora type landscapes yeah there, so. yeah but and, and that, that hard-hitting social commentary about unomtanium <sighs> yeah right <laughs> well and and avatar is sort of this plot is basically it's a ripoff of dances with wolves and aliens if you watch aliens with a critical eye aliens is a regurgitation of the original film alien uh some of the plot mechanisms are exactly the same for like especially towards the end you know you have oh the you know you have the alien uh what do they call that the 
it's it's a clap trap. I call it a clap trap, but it's like the alien hitches a ride on the escape vehicle. Oh, everybody yeah. thinks they're safe, and then all of a sudden the alien crawls out of the ductwork, and there it is again. And you know she has to fight it again and blow it out of the goddamn airlock. You know what? Uh, I didn't see it coming. It really blew my mind. <laughs> Well, and then as they're escaping, remember, as they're escaping the original site of destruction, it detonates in a thermonuclear explosion, just like the Nostromo detonated in a thermonuclear explosion in the beginning. So the end sequence, the last 30, 40 minutes of both films are almost exactly the same. Uh, I'm not, you know, criticizing it. I well, look the shit look, out of both of them. It's but, a good uh, film and it's a fun watch, but it's not a great film. No. No, no. And that's okay. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. So uh, here's here's a bit of trivia. Uh, I was looking at a lot of the technical details, and I'll talk about some of my pet peeves in sci-fi here in a second. But I wanted to ask you a trivia question. It's not really a trivia question. How many aliens are there in Aliens? Uh, well, I mean, there's two types. Well, I guess there's three if you consider no, it no, no, no. hand Count. grabber thing. Count. Oh, uh Boy, I just I would just have to take a guess, and I guess you would try to your best to determine which ones had, were seen twice. I would say something with all the implied gunshots, like in the extended version with the. Uh, this include the uh, hallway scenes with the auto guns. Sure, your count uh, all the aliens in the entire colony. Oh well, I guess you could probably say that it'd be around 130 or so since that's how many colonists there were. Yeah, 158. And that's the thing that always puzzled me about this movie is uh, they, you know, need to do the tally. Okay, there's 158 colonists, so there can only be 158 potential aliens. And then kind of do the body count, you know, like, oh, hey, you know, how many do you think we killed? How many do you think there are? Uh, you know, and if you had like well, sort of an not, idea, maybe they didn't. I mean, it's going to be less than 158, right? Because the aliens yeah. aren't perfect about their capture implantation business, right? True, right? And it certainly doesn't seem like they blow through 140. And plus, they don't need to blow through all of them because they leave the complex before making a detailed search of the whole place, right? Yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking if you kind of knew that, okay, well, we've killed maybe 30 and we're halfway out of our ammunition stock, you know, you could sort of do some simple math about how long you could hold out against them and, uh, I don't know, figure out some kind of plan based on the, the enemy count that you have, as opposed to thinking they're going to be crawling out of the walls constantly at you, which, of course, can't happen because they need human hosts to gestate and all that good stuff. But Well, anyway. I think is the idea is that they came in – I mean, the whole idea is they came in full of themselves and got they got right. way over their heads real fast, and then everything just evolved into just trying to survive and sort of a a careful, measured approach to overtaking the colony, uh, retaking the colony was never really ever carried out. So Cameron's impetus for, uh, I guess, the the aliens was to sort of introduce a Vietnam. Uh, I wouldn't call it a passion play. Maybe that's the wrong word. A uh, using that as kind of a the patina. Boiler. Yeah, what a patina. What is a patina? You no, know, it's a it's a type of uh, like a wall. Actually, I think it's a type of like preparation on brass, which makes it uh, look old oh, or okay. uh, give it a certain flavor. 
I think maybe it makes it look maybe like other metals, I think, possibly. All right. I wasn't going for that at all. But uh, my point was is that uh, using sort of Vietnam as the impetus and uh, basically having sort of a technologically superior force going into a combat situation where they're, they don't understand their enemy to the level that they can combat them effectively. And so James Cameron, since he was, uh, I guess, uh, of the Vietnam era generation, was thinking about the U.S.'s technologically superior force going into Vietnam and fighting, you know, the Viet Cong, uh, who were basically peasants with the guerrilla tactics and uh, having absolutely, um, I guess, minimal tactics to defeat them because uh, they weren't planning on fighting that kind of army when they got there. So, you know, the aliens are obviously um, more or less giant insects. Uh, And that's kind of what's so creepy about the xenomorph alien and all the alien movies. And, you know, to be honest, the alien has always been my boogeyman. I watched Alien at a very early age. I snuck up one night and uh, watched Showtime when I was like six or seven, and I wanted to watch Alien. And, uh, yeah, I watched it and terrified myself. And so ever since, uh, when I have a nightmare, about half the time it's an alien chasing me down. Like I had a dream the other night where uh, it was I was in a house, like a just a big wooden house, and it was filled with water. And I was swimming around inside of it, and aliens were coming out to get me, you know. And, of course, they never get me. I always wake up beforehand. So there's mm. something about the Giger alien that has always just so, creeped me the fuck out. So the other half of the time, is it an enormous vulva that's chasing you? Yes, exactly. You guessed it. Yeah, usually. And then, uh, yeah, then I'm throwing little pickles at it. And I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just Those it's really crazy. little tiny ones, little sweet ones. They're not even yeah. girls. Where did I hear that from? That's not that's not original. I heard that from a movie somewhere. I, I used to have dreams as a kid where there were blades coming down from the ceiling trying to chop my penis off. I think it's like a, <laughs> I think it's like some sort of memory as an if it of being a, a circumcised. Circumcised. I'm pretty sure yeah. it is. So that's yeah. why I'm an intactivist now. Yeah, I miss. I want mine back. Damn it! I want to go on some kind of uh, march for uh, against male genital mutilation. You know. Well, you know, there's worse things you could do with your time uh, than cut the end of your dick off. No, then campaign against it. Oh, okay, that's true. Uh, anyway, uh, it's doesn't. It's not one of the biggest issues of our time, but uh, you know, uh, it should. Be. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I guess you know, I've enjoyed. Giger's, Giger's sort of neat in his art style, even though he wasn't used in this film at all. They just recycled his old, yeah, uh, his old images. They're, okay. I guess they're okay. I guess I never really found them sort of frightening, necessarily. I, I always found the sexual aspect of them more interesting, because uh, you know, the, like the face hugger, which you see in quite a bit of detail. They got that sort of penis coming out of a, oh, a yeah. vagina sort of thing. And right. then if you look at the chest of the queen, I was watching the. The queen fight in detail, and I would was pausing it, and there was just like a huge, huge vulva right in the middle of the queen's <laughs> chest. It's just it's like an outer and an inner. It was oh uh, really? It was pretty amazing. Equipped with a clitoris and the whole bit. Yeah, so I uh, you know, 
I'll squeeze one out real quick and then uh, oh, finish yeah. up the pre production. <laughs> whatever, 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 whatever works at the time. Once you go xenomorph, you never go back. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, I think for me, the the the, the xenomorph alien uh, reminds is very insectile. Uh, it's like you know, it's the biomechanical sort of Giger trip, you know. So it has an insect nature about it uh, that. I think makes it gives it an added level of terror because we always think of insects as lacking even the most basic anthropomorphic uh, uh, characteristics. Like we we just lack so much empathy for bugs. Bugs are swattable. Um, you well, know. if they're small enough, if they're too big, I mean, you've never like smashed or sprayed like a big spider with bug spray and sort of felt sad as it slowly suffocates on the floor i feel a bit but that's just because it's a living thing i i still i've killed more insects in my life than any other type of life form maybe save vegetable matter but uh you know uh insects are just like impersonal sort of uh simple-minded most of them killing machines the thing about the the thing about the xenomorphs though is they're, they're they're more than just insects. They're really they've got they have so many humanoid features, like their teeth and sort of some parts of their skull have sort of a, a human like outline to them, and their hands and everything. Well, yeah. I, I guess I always feel them as more like some sort of demon, which are usually humanoid versus an insect. A demon is good. I see more. As, yeah. I see more demonic than insectoid. Um, they're like, I would, I would say a combination of the two, but yeah, they're definitely demonic in, uh, their look feel. And, uh, you know, and the great thing about aliens that were Cameron took a, a great idea and really, uh, humped guess, it. Well, he didn't, I, no, he did hump it, but he also, uh, the movement was integral to this movie, uh, the alien movement. Um, in the Rip Ridley Scott, you didn't have much a sense of, you know, the locomotion or it kind of seemed like sort of an awkward, large, you know, stumbling man in a big suit. But in this, there was lots of, uh, I don't know if it was wire work or sort of camera trickery, uh, to make the alien definitely look like a mobile, you know, uh, incredibly fast killing machine especially well, did you like, did you listen to the uh commentary track there was actually a rather well-produced commentary track with quite a few uh people including cameron and he sort no. of talks about some of the he talks a lot about how the special effects were done it's no, actually a pretty good commentary that. track if you ever get a chance to listen to it and he talks about what you were saying exactly about how to make the suits more mobile and i guess uh he was saying that in the first Aliens, it was really like a big uh, foam rubber suit that was poured and tough to move in. And he said in this one, he put them like in dark uh, like spandex suits and then like glued on these individual pieces on the outside to keep their range of motion really high. I read that. And since it was such dark lighting, he could get away with that for the most part. He didn't have to put a lot of high detail into the suits. And I also read that there was only actually six alien suits. So, uh, you know, they were able to get by 
with very few. And I think there was actually they had some budget limitations on this, which seems kind of bizarre because it seems like a really big budget film for 1985, 86. Um, well, he squeezed had, a lot out of it, but he was still. I mean, he had only really direct. What did he direct before this? Um, uh, well, he had directed Terminator, but it hadn't even come out by the time he was hired for Aliens. So he didn't even have that to build on. Yeah, I just see know. he didn't have. I don't think he had the hootspa to pull down a big budget. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. But he, he sure uh, made he sure made the most with it. Actually, if you, if you ever get a chance to listen to the special features, his I think it was his wife at the time was the producer. I, I forget her correct. name. But she does right. a lot of uh, chatting, and uh, she talks about only one thing, the whole goddamn commentary track, <laughs> about how much she hated working with the union shops over in England. She she could not stop bitching and moaning about how those union guys didn't, didn't think that working 14-hour days was a good idea and preferred just to put in eight or nine hours. And she oh. would just complain and complain yeah. and cameron would complain about it too she said the work was the best i ever seen but they just didn't seem interested in working 14 hour days over and over again wow shocking yeah so, yeah i know it was progressive societies it's uh it's it's just uh yeah no i can see uh james cameron basically uh working like 20 hours a day on his films i think he, he's so obsessive that i don't think uh you know, he ever he ever does anything lightly, it seems, because he doesn't do that many movies, for starters. Um, you know. He probably burns he probably burns people out like nobody's business. Oh, he's got to he be just, like a megalomaniac. He, he grabs 22-year-olds and then throws them away spent at about 25 after they've could you, worked these endless 14-hour days on his projects. Could you imagine how he would probably was beating on those CGI artists for Avatar? You know, and oh, and, God. I, just, I could never work for somebody like that. I'm an eight-hour-a-day man. I don't want to play uh, 14 hour yeah. days. Fuck that shit. Unless yeah. I'm getting paid a whole hell of a lot of money. And I doubt that all the little peons that are putting in their 14 hour days are, you know, getting tons of money on his projects. So I'm guessing Cameron and his wife were probably big Margaret Thatcher fans at the time if they were over there in <laughs> Thatcher's Britain. I don't know, but they would not, especially the woman, would not stop complaining about the fucking union guys god yeah I, I got so sick and tired i just started fast forwarding through wow was that was adam was adam carroll on that uh, <laughs> i was wondering i was well. just expecting adam carroll to do one of his <laughs> tracks come in uh, can you believe it the union jesus christ <laughs> and they were complaining about the rules that they had to conform to as as uh the production in britain were having to hire uh uh, British actors, and they said that whenever they hired a part, and if they wanted like an American actor for it, what they had to do was interview three thousand British actors and reject them, and then they were allowed oh to hire God. their <laughs> hire no. their American actor. Uh, yeah, I think it would have been easier just to train a bunch of uh, British guys to use like uh, American English, you know, for the uh, the Marines. So I think I think a lot of the people were I think there a lot of them were expats, but um, oh, okay. But you know that's where the eighteen million dollars was. So he was a young filmmaker, so he went with who had who had the money, right? Uh, so I'm trying to think of where to go with the podcast in this film because I don't want to kind of go over trod territory. There's the aliens has been mined by the sci-fi fantasy community for so long and humped for so long in either comic book form. Um, usually a lot of comic books have been generated from, from aliens and aliens. The, I guess the, the two following subpar sequels from it, uh, the miserable. Oh, and Hey, I liked aliens cubed. 
I really enjoyed it. Okay, it was dark. I kind of felt sorry because there wasn't really much material to work with past um, this film. You know, it kind of ties up nicely, so, you know, you have to carry it on a little bit. But it had a nice look, and I like David Fincher. Uh, Yeah, I I like the whole idea of the double XY prison colony. It was sort of hot news at the time about there were a few studies about double XY males. Oh, okay. Had a... uh, a statistical increased amount of violent tendencies. I don't know if that's been debunked by now. Uh, yeah. um, so it was I, a great I, idea, and I liked it. I was, I think, Aliens, I think I, I, I watched this to death when I was in high school. I, I watched, and it was nice because I haven't watched it in like probably 10 to 15 years, and I watched it again here, and so it was really nice to see it kind of on the widescreen and all that. But I think I almost just burned myself out watching Aliens so much because I was so enamored. Uh, with the hardware in this film. Uh, James Cameron has a sense about hardware and not just it's, uh, you know, throwing it into a movie, but making it sort of an essential component that adds, uh, I guess, a, a level of detail that wouldn't be there without it. It's not just set. It's not just window dressing. He actually uses the hardware significantly that he's created in the film. And so, you know, the pulse rifles that are used are great weapons. Uh, They're just kind of modified submachine guns that they kind of tricked out and added some, uh, you know, added that grenade launcher thing. But the sound, you know, the sound of those those machine guns aren't like anything you heard before and haven't heard since. Um, The... uh, the dropship, which I thought was just amazing when I was a kid, which is basically just a, I think it's like an AH Cobra cockpit mixed with some, uh, I think some, like it's if you took like a, a, a F4 Phantom testers model kit and uh, a AH Cobra testers model kit, and you just kind of combined them together, you know, it's kind of what you got. Well, I mean, that is literally what they would do. Yes. Yeah. That's right. probably literally how it was made. They would get model kits and just piece these little pieces of plastic together until they were happy with what it looked like. I mean, right. I guess you sort of forget, even though this was done back in, what was it, 86? Yeah. That this is every single effect is practical. Every every special effect is in camera for the most part, except for maybe some of the uh, overexposures and some of the lightning effects. But all like the stuff blowing up behind characters—it's all rear projection, oh, yeah. front projection. You know, force perspective miniatures in the foreground, making it look like they were in the background. A lot of, a lot of playing around with the speed of the film. I mean, yeah. it's, everything's practical. It's just insane. This is basically almost an example of the peak of practical effects. Because after this, uh, you really start seeing digital stuff. Almost just a few years after this. Well, and, uh, you know, that's kind of Cameron's part of pioneered that, obviously, with, with Avatar. He took that to the second, le- you know, to the next level with the CGI effects. But uh, I do miss those practical effects and the models, and the models specifically. There's a part of you that is obviously aware that you're looking at a model. I mean, because it's a, you know, it's obviously a science fiction film. Well, but, and, the, and, the, and a lot of times the lighting isn't quite right. Yeah. But uh, I just I don't know. There, there's there's sort of a care taken with model making uh, that I think since you're 
you're sort of resource limited. You know, it's like uh, with CGI, you can just like pull stuff apart and put it back together again. And, uh, you know, your resources aren't expended doing that. But with these like practical models, you know, there's there's it's kind of like a one off thing. And and, uh, they don't quite know what they're going to get until they're done. And I don't know. I just and and the shot is the shot. I mean, the special effects done at the same time the actor does their performance. It's just insane how all these things have to come together and go through the lens of that camera onto film. All at one time. So I loved like the dropship idea. I loved even the troop personnel character as impractical or character uh, APC the 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 you know the basically the modified uh, airplane tow rig that they built yeah. up. Um, even though that is seems to be like the worst idea for an APC ever is to have something that that's much of that is that's that much of a low rider. I mean, there's no clearance. And, you know, the way they shot miniature and and full size, you know, right on top of each other, splicing it piece after piece. It's I I guess that ability is probably lost in filmmaking. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's any of those practical uh, model shops or effect shops anymore. I think those are all probably gone. You know, that whole art is gone. Just like stop motion is really gone nobody does that much anymore and you see some of that in here too it's just kind of nice like the uh the loaders oh that's another great thing is those you know uh mech loaders that they're walking around in which again to me seems like a very impractical piece of hardware like <laughs> why why can't you're in okay in space i mean it doesn't, it doesn't seem that weird i mean people i mean robotics guys are always working around with these force feedback exoskeleton type things you see an article on the internet every few years where there's some sort of uh you know something to help people walk if they're disabled or or uh or the idea of force amplification via exoskeleton if of all the things in the film that seemed almost the most practical to me Um, you could actually use a as as opposed to a forklift i mean it's it's complicated and it probably wouldn't make much sense in the uh, warehouse setting no no and you probably wouldn't just you probably wouldn't hand just grab a uh a live bomb with uh with some sort of articulated arm thing and throw it in the uh in your drop ship the only thing i could see that you would use that for is like if you were on a bunch of gravel and you know with like cables and hoses and stuff we had to actually step over stuff and move stuff around i don't know i was trying to make up excuses for it and i just yeah. didn't have and that I- many in a hangar, you use that old invention, the wheel. Yeah, use the wheel. Uh, you could even use a gantry system above the vehicle, you know, above the dropship to do that kind of crap. You know, I don't know. So a crane, but it was a cool yeah. effect and sort of interesting hearing about it. I'm sure you you must have read about how they did it. I did not actually. Uh, well, get- basically, there was a they did it a couple different ways. With the the main idea that Cameron said he has was it's that old trick where um, a kid will ride like on his father's feet. Oh so you yeah. Step on the feet and you ride around. And basically they had a huge muscle built muscle guy inside that suit. And, uh, and Sigourney Weaver would basically stand on his feet and really walk together. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of crazy. They huh. also had like some other, they had some suspension rigs as well for different shots, but that was the basic idea for the, for the, uh, for the, what they call it, the auto loader or something? Uh, I just call it like a, a loader. I don't know what else because she had like a class three license for one of those things. Oh, that's um, a pretty good license. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to a class two or one entry level, you know. I mean, the practical effects are fun. I guess that's probably what keeps the movie fresh, especially that period of time from like about, I don't know, 50 minutes in to about two hours is really yeah. heavy. That's when the Marines are, are slicing and dicing and getting, getting picked off one after the other. Yeah, and, and that's he, my favorite part of the film is the part uh, I think that begins with them going into the reactor or whatever the atmospheric processing plant. That first fight, the route, uh, you know, kind of the tension that's built, the uh, just that the level of terror that uh, Cameron's able to dial up. Um, and one of the my favorite scenes and talking about the hardware is the robot sentries because you don't you get a little bit of like some you know footage of of the sentries blowing away aliens but what you really get in that first scene is you just see the ammo count and you hear the sound you know maybe 100 yards away and then you can hear them scream and you hear it's like i don't know it's it's it lets your imagination go crazy is just thinking about a tunnel filled with so many aliens that these things can't push them back and then you just see the ammo count go down and it's that feeling of dread that Cameron's able to build up just with a simple you know computer display you're like oh my god you know are they going to stop before they 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 drain all the ammo and why that got cut i don't know why maybe it's a little long but that's like a fun scene i love that scene well it was uh cameron on his commentary said it was just cut for time oh, he was, was okay. you know he didn't he didn't have all the you know the power he had just now and so he was just told in no uncertain terms that he had to cut like a half hour out of his final cut which is what what his his director's cut which is what we watched you just had to go back and cut like a half hour out of it, and that was that. And that was just oh. one of the scenes that got the axe. That's a bummer because that's those are that's like one of my the, one of the funnest pieces of hardware that you get to see used in the film. You know, because this is kind of a hardware movie, as I like to call it. So you know, all the gadgets you know, this, that are here. Yeah, this is one of those films that is improved by an extra half hour of runtime. An unusual situation for a film that's already right. a, was a couple hours long. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Th- I. Sorry, I'm just going off on the gadgets. I just love like the welder. No, you, you keep talking about the gadgets. When you're done, I want to talk about the characters. Like the welder, uh, I love the little hand welder. I loved uh, the the motion trackers, which I thought really dialed up the dread really well. Uh, the terror, you know, uh, stuff's coming to get you, and you know it's coming to get you. But it's sort of abstract at that point, you know. I don't know. It's uh, great stuff. So. They really need to get a vector quantity on those trackers, not just a <laughs> right. scaler, right? Because you didn't know what direction they were coming in. I mean, uh, the device must have been able to do that. Yeah, some of the uh, some of the technology is sort of passe. It's just, it's just sort of interesting. All right, so I'm done. I just, I just, uh, I, I think that's why I really loved this movie when I was a kid, as I just fell in love with all the sci-fi hardware and uh, wanted to emulate it and you know, draw pictures of it and all that good stuff. So. Well, let's talk about the other major section that was cut out of the theatrical release, and I'll start it off by playing a little clip from that. Hey, Al. What? You remember you sent some wildcatters out in the middle of nowhere last week, uh, out past the Ilium range? Yeah, what? Uh, well, one of them's on the horn, a uh, mom and pop survey team. He says he's on to something. He wants to know if his claim will be on it. Why wouldn't his claim be on it? 
Well, because you sent them out to that particular middle of nowhere on company orders, maybe? I don't know. Christ. Some honch in a cushy office on Earth says, go look at a grid reference. We look. They don't say why, and I don't ask. I don't ask because it takes two weeks to get an answer out here, and the answer is always don't, don't ask. ask. <laughs> yeah. I, I like those two guys. And uh, I don't think we ever really get their names. If we did, I never bothered looking it up. But that's, I thought that was a pretty fun little piece of dialogue. In the it film. was – they had the, the Hadley Hope stuff pre, I guess, um, you know, alien apocalypse. It's interesting. I, I kind of had a problem with it in the fact that I liked sort of the original cut where you – it leaves everything up to your imagination. I mean, it does anyway, because you don't ever get any battle scenes uh, shown of that first battle or how the colony deals with the infestation or anything like that. But uh, I don't know. I, I it, it could have – I mean, it was nice to see. Uh, I didn't think it added much to the film. Um, I, I agree with you, too, on that first part. It was sort of fun to see. So I guess not entirely is this is this cut better than the theatrical release because I don't think losing this – really detracted anything from the film yeah um it does set up some sort of storyline issues though uh having this initial part in there that doesn't totally make sense because i mean the whole idea and i guess you you don't really know how much paul riser's character is lying to you but the idea is that uh you know the company didn't believe uh ripley's story and uh so they just sort of ended up writing off the cost of that mining ship. And so Paul Reiser goes, well, maybe there's something going on. So he asked the people at the colony to go check out the site that Ripley uh, talked about. And um, there's really, a t- there's a few problems. First in the audio, we just heard uh, the, I guess the manager, Wait now. the fat Wait, hold guy. On. Hold on a second. You're saying that the Carter Burke character using Ripley's, I guess, testimony uh, sent the colonists out based on that, or did he just send them out, send them out based on a hunch? I mean, was that the impetus? Yeah, that's why he sent, well, he was there thinking that maybe there is something and he was, he had a profit motive. He says there's sort of two pieces of information. First, he admits to sending uh, the coordinates to the colony and asking them to check it out. Okay. And at, at the initial uh, in the the meeting scene, he says that uh, the timeline of what happened with the uh, Nostromo was uh, pulled off from the lock. So they knew where the crafts went. They knew okay. that they sat down on the planet. So he probably had the actual uh, coordinates of where they sat down. So uh, and he just sent him out there to see if there was something to her story, even though he didn't really believe okay. it. Yeah. But there's a couple of things. First, in, in the. Did you get saw, that? Wait a minute. Hold on a second. Did you get that yeah. from? Was that in the the Hadley Hope scene? Did that come in that Carter Burke had sent them out to that location based on? No, Ripley's? he admits to it later uh, when uh, one of the couple of scenes where he's confronted by Ripley after she figures right. out he's an asshole. Uh, but there's the problem is there's holes in this storyline. First, um, from the Earth perspective, they just all of a sudden stop getting communication from the colony, so everything's hunky dory. And then there's no communication, right. which doesn't really make sense with the idea that they had some time and there was a battle and they came to take samples from these aliens. They obviously would have sent some message and saying, we ran into some fucked up shit up here. Right. So the idea that everything's hunky dory and then they lose communication suddenly doesn't make sense. Second, well, uh, the uh, the wildcatters that they're talking about 
supposedly called into the base saying they found something at these coordinates that we were told to check out by the, the head office. But when we see the wildcatters out there with the Newt's family, it's, there's nothing of the case. They just go out there. They, the first time they look, everything goes to shit. So they wouldn't yeah. have called back going, uh, oh, my husband's dying, but can we have this claim? Is that cool? <laughs> oh, they would never right. have done that. So uh, it doesn't yeah. really make sense. And in a way, it's better if uh, if that scene's cut, I guess, because it, it puts up some holes in the storyline that I guess maybe would have been worked out if they would have let the scene in there. But um, yeah. uh, It's kind of forgiven. I, that's sort of interesting, though. I hadn't thought about the sequence of events that led up to um you know the whole carter burke because uh, he's already i don't know he's sort of tagged in the beginning as being a, a douche douchey company man that you automatically hate and so oh, I, 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 I wouldn't say that I, I think it does a good job of keeping you sort of in the dark about what burke's all about i mean sure he's a company man but you don't really know he's a total unrepentant asshole until he tries to impregnate newt and ripley well sure but you get like he cares about the uh you know there's the scene in the apc where he's like well we don't you know we can't just uh, we don't have the right to exterminate this species and this is a installation with a you know multi-million dollar price tag attack i mean he's all kind of about the i guess the um uh, you know the unemotional uh, implications of their current situation. He doesn't, he's not reacting on any kind of, uh, uh, I guess, emotional level, but more of a pragmatic capitalist. Uh, well, you know, well, he is, but he also, I think he keeps up a pretty good guise that, you know, look, he works for the company. I mean, he, the first time you see him, he goes, yeah, I work for, uh, uh, Ye- Waylon Yutani, but uh, don't hold that against me. Right. That's what his first line. Right, right. And and then he, he also, I think he tries to, he does, a, I think, a pretty convincing act that he cares. So I got, I got one scene right here that has uh, uh, that character and also Bishop in it that sort of gives a little taste of his, of his personality. So here it goes. I thought you never missed, Bishop. You never said anything about an android being on board. Why not? It never, never occurred to me. It's just common practice. We always have a synthetic on board. I prefer the term artificial person myself. Is there a problem? I'm sorry. I don't know why I didn't even... Ripley's last trip out, the the artificial person malfunctioned. Malfunctioned? There were problems and uh, a few deaths were involved. I'm shocked. Was it an older model? Yeah, the Hyperdyne system is 128.2. Well, that explains it. And the A2s always were a bit twitchy. That could never happen now with our behavioral inhibitors. It is impossible for me to harm or by a mission of action allow to be harmed a human being. You sure you don't want some? Just stay away from me, Bishop. You got that straight? Guess you don't like the cornbread either. <laughs> yeah, it's a good I, I, almost, I, almost, I almost use that as the intro to the podcast, but I guess I like the monster idea better. It's Just a good scene now, because it gives you sort of the, uh, you know, the Carter Burke, um, I guess, bullshit company diplomatic explanation of the situation, you know, how it would be written up in a memo, uh, kind of, uh, but it, it's sort of detracting from the actual events, invo- events of, involved when you watch the original Alien, 
you know, you, you, the, the, uh, I don't know, uh, malfunction. Well, Ripley believes it. Ripley has every reason not to trust Burke, but I think that the way Burke presents himself as a company man, but I also care. She buys well, it. And if there's anybody beyond me that should be skeptical of Burke, it's Ripley. But Ripley buys his performance. I think it's a really great performance. I think it is all the performances actually. in the movie. That's Paul Reiser's performance is almost the best. He just he's got this character that rides this line. Who's who's really putting up a, a just a beautifully crafted false face for everybody. Yeah, and uh, I I just think it's really impressive, and I, I really like that scene where he's talking about how he. Oh, I'm so sorry. I I didn't even think that you would have a problem with synthetics you know when he when really it's just a bunch of bullshit and plus it introduces the bishop character this is the well this is after the scene where he plays a uh, rochambeau or whatever that yeah, knife know. game is i'm gonna call it mumbly peg but that's not it mumbly either. peg that's right and um i i just i think you know that's the other performance that i really really enjoy is uh lance hendrickson's performance as bishop i think he really captures the synthetic really well yeah it made me it made me think that i really want to Go and watch um, the uh, uh, the new Alien inspired movie, and who's who's playing Prometheus. the synthetic? And, yeah, Prometheus and uh, Fastbender plays the synthetic. If I've heard it's sort of a shitty movie, and I think you oh, saw you haven't it. seen it. Yeah, now it's, uh, if, if, if anything, I think I'd, I'd like to see it just to see Fastbender's performance because I like Lance Hendrickson so much as Bishop uh, in this movie. Yeah, I didn't really want to talk about Prometheus because Prometheus kind of muddles pretty much the origins of the alien to a point that doesn't make any sense. And uh, I don't know about it. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, of all the xenomorph stuff, I guess that's the main feature of the aliens universe. I think I really like the synthetics most about this universe. I like this idea. You know, you know, I have a fascination of man giving birth to its, his successor. Sure. And, you know, I sort of fascinated by this idea of making artificial intelligence. I mean, sure. The whole automaton idea is sort of, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense in the long run, but um, but I do I do like the portrayal of of the uh, of the synthetics in the in the alien yeah, series of movies. Yeah, it, it definitely complements the universe really well, and it's uh, you know it's not the 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 ba- it doesn't form the basis of the plot. You could definitely do these movies without the synthetics, but maybe it, not the original Alien because you need sort of a Howl type character in that. Yeah, but you do, you know, it, it, it kind of fleshes out a little bit more of the sci-fi universe, more than just a prop. It it sort of like, and which I think is Cameron is really effective. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't take the window dressing of the sci-fi universe and just kind of make it a set piece. He actually uses it in the plot and uses it effectively. Uh, and you definitely get that with the Bishop character, you know, because, uh, He's integral to a lot of the plot. And uh, just to have a character who is so cool and level-headed, you know, he's in there just continuing his studies on the facehuggers, even though, like, shit's coming down and, you know, there's an army of aliens wanting to crawl in and kill him. He's just like, eh, you know, I got I got other shit to do. I'm going to take this yeah, time. Yeah, they, they the know that they're going to have our time making it through that one night. This is before they know the, the fusion reactor is going to blow. Yeah. yeah, and he's really—he's just so cool, calm, but also caring and attentive. He's always worried about other people's issues, like if somebody's going to catch their fingers when they're sealing them in the uh, 
the pipe. Oh, yeah, yeah, to watch your fingers. Across the complex. He's like, <laughs> well, don't get your fingers caught in there. <laughs> right. Even though you're sealing me in a metal tube that I have to crawl through for a mile and, uh, you know, God knows what's in it. Yeah. And after Ripley, like, throws his lunch tray away in that scene we just listened to, the next thing he does is goes and picks it up right when that yeah. scene ends. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, the Bishop character is definitely Bishop. And I'd say, yeah, the Bishop and the Carter Burke character are probably uh, one of the most interesting characters. The Ripley character and the sort of motherhood subplot. Uh, it's interesting, but it definitely doesn't add much more to her other than uh, it seems a little forced, I guess. And Well, and, I think, you know, you I think maybe we should talk about this again in about eight months and see what you think about this whole parenting trope oh yeah that's in the movie okay. i think that right. uh i think if you haven't been a parent and if you haven't been a mother and you ever had a child I, at least from talking to people i don't think there's any way to understand it unless you experience it yourself and sort of the power that comes with it i mean it's such the overarching hitch over the head part of the yeah. part of the movie it's it's the two mothers who are both looking after their children at the end going mono on mono. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And it's the fight about it's it's my kids or it's your kids and I think mothers would be more than willing to tear themselves apart if it meant the survival uh, of their children. Yeah, there was a event here at uh, the Woodland Park Zoo where uh two mothers battled it out because one of them stole an Easter egg in the Easter egg hunt. So, you know, it was a Well, you can see the <laughs> scream of agony of the queen xenomorph when uh, basically uh, Ripley loses her shit and her, her pent-up anger and hatred of the xenomorphs and destroys the brood, the queen yeah. is just, she howls. And then right. next thing she knows, she rips off her ovipositor to come after just to, for vengeance. She sees nothing but blood. And True. it's sort of sad in the end. She fails. It's almost, you almost feel for her. Uh, no, if you watch Alien 3, she she she. Doesn't no, nah, that's what that's what was kind of stupid about Alien Three. Well, she has like I don't, a couple of reserve eggs in in tow, you know, and it's kind of kind of dumb. I felt that's why I felt bad for the screenplay writers for Alien Three. Is like you really had to squeeze some shit out of aliens to, you know, make that um, work. But uh, I, I didn't I didn't mind. It didn't really affect me that Newt was just dead, and so was yeah, uh, whatever uh, Carter. <laughs> or what? No, what's his uh, uh, the Hicks character? Yeah, Dwayne Hicks. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, well. Um, so, uh, you know, and the other great character in this film, I don't know if you want to continue talking about characters, yeah, is, sure. obviously, is obviously Hudson. Yeah, that's right. He's your, uh, your he's namesake. Just, he's, he's nothing. He is nothing but fun in this entire movie. Yo, stop your grinning and drop your linen. <laughs> it's a lyric from he's an just, ACDC song, by the way. I don't know. Oh, is one. it? Yeah. He's just got, he's got nothing but uh, great things. Check it out. I am the ultimate badass. Yeah. State of the badass art. <laughs> yeah. He's just, he's just constantly uh, doing one after the other. Hey, Vasquez. Have you ever been mistaken for a man? No. Have you? That's one of my favorite lines right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, just, he, uh, he, so adds, he adds some comic relief to a sort of terror and dread-filled dread filled film uh you can kind of see that like you can see a bit of yourself in him when he's freaking out you know like he's like because uh, that's what you would want to do you know like uh i would lose my shit it reminded me of chef <laughs> a little bit in apocalypse now oh you yeah know? 
He yeah. would occasionally just lose it because of the craziness of the situation. Right. And I like that, but he pulled himself together after he was, you know, admonished oh, yeah. by the people around him. Yeah. Uh, there was one, like, uh, there was one quote where it was something about, uh, how about some other bad news? And he goes, well, that's a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I just... That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, he's, he's got tons of them. I think that's enough of his one-liners. But yeah, no, he's yeah, he's just the he's Bill just Paxton fun to watch. Character's great. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of and actually yeah, the Hicks character is probably the least interesting character. Uh, and he's yeah, like one I, of the more prominent. You know, he gets more film time than than a lot of folks in this. You know, and uh, I, I liked know. Hicks. He was very likable. I mean, I think there's some extra scenes in this playing up the sort of nonsensical romance. Between oh, the yeah. impossibly damaged Ridley by this point, yeah, and Hicks, yeah, she's there's some ruined. overly sweet moments that I think were cut from the theatrical. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, then a lot of the peripheral characters, like I like the lieutenant that uh, had his redemption there at the end. You know, um, after he panicked uh, during the initial Gorman, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good character development. I don't think you get a lot of that in these kind of films today if there are these kind of films today that uh you know and i think that's probably due to cameron's writing i think he takes care with that kind of thing uh he doesn't um he uses everything to its maximum in his films and he doesn't leave things in or put things in that aren't necessary and uh you know that's kind of i mean that's sort of detailed oriented megalomaniac people really take I guess not megalomaniac, perfectionist. I'd say James Cameron's a perfectionist, and he just, you know, takes everything he can get and makes the most out of it, and that's one of the reasons this movie works so well. You know, there's just nothing. Yeah. Um, well, I started out the podcast with I wanted to, to, to rant a little about sci-fi plausibility in films, and I give this movie a big pass, but there's some – and whenever you get involved with interstellar travel – uh, I, I couldn't figure out like how long it takes to get places, um, you know, how long it takes to communicate to places. Uh, the other thing that always bugs me is artificial gravity. Uh, it's, you know, the, the sort of the Star Trek uh, spaceship idea. You're always, uh, there's always some way. And to me, as we get sort of further on, in our modern society with our knowledge of physics in the universe, that always seems like the most trivial thing introduced to a spaceship, but probably the most complicated and challenging thing to do is to like, I would say beyond like interstellar, uh, you know, space drives is to just make some kind of artificial gravity. (laughs) Well, you know, I've only seen one film where they really addressed it and that was uh, 2010. Oh, well, they just have like a, a like sort of a rotating uh Yeah, the quarters toroid. is like they just use a, a s- centrifugal setup. And yeah. I guess they did they did the same thing on in 2001 as well. I guess those right. are only really two films that really addressed that issue. I, I You know, the problem is even in today's special effects world we live in, it's just so hard to film free fall. I mean, there's only one way to film your actors in free fall. Well, there's two. You can totally synthesize the actors as puppets digitally. Right. Or you, you go on one of those uh, vomit rockets and film your scenes, scenes like a minute and a half at a time. 
Well, in, like they uh, did for Apollo 13. All yeah. their zero, all the free fall stuff is all, all filmed on one of those parabola 747s or whatever. I know it's just it's an expense thing. Uh, it just it's for some it's reason terribly expensive. It just sticks in my craw, and uh, <laughs> I just like God, you know, that's like yeah. you can't do that. You know, why don't you just have something spinning on the Sulaco that would just kind of you know throw a bone to me, you know, for that. But then there's like how quickly they're transmitting and how long it would take to get somewhere. Uh, never really made any sense to me. You know, they um, never address the distances in this film. No. They ignore any sort of time dilation issues or any just straight up time issues at all. They can get somewhere and I believe they pretty much say 17 days to get this, which is certainly an extra solar body. Yeah, it, it's like uh, if this planet was the moon, you know, and uh, you had space stations, you could just throw stuff out over to the moon. Uh, communicate almost instantaneously and stuff like that. So uh, it always just kind of bugs me. And, you know, you could you can always, like, throw some uh, gimmicks in there to make it work. Like, oh, well, we're, you know, going through a black hole or we're transmitting through a collapsar or we're doing some, I don't know, or some kind of... Uh, well, they get the time dilation, just they get it backwards. You know, the the time, the transit time is short for the people stationary to the travelers and the transit time is long for the traveler. It would be totally right. the opposite if you're traveling at very high speeds. Yeah, you well, and you need to go into hypersleep for a 17 day mission, or uh, that. Yeah, so that, well, that doesn't make any sense. Right. I mean, if you're traveling near the speed of light, it'd be the opposite. Would be the problem. Yeah, you would never have to go to sleep. You, if you're traveling near the speed of light, you just stay. I mean, it'd be like five minutes, and you'd be there. You know, and then yeah. I mean, and it'd then, just be about. It'd be well, you know, they they you know the one one I I just really love uh, that. Uh, that, the movie that got the whole drop ship. I mean, the book that got uh, what was it called? The the Forever War. Oh, the, uh, Joel really, Alderman's Forever War, which is I they was really going to talk recommend about that. the idea of you know all these. Yeah, I love how they address the idea of you know this high, super high speed, uh, you know, f- fractionally close to the speed of light, and all the acceleration issues. I love how it addresses it. I've never well, seen anything address it so well. That's a brilliant novel, and I would I would say for anybody. Who wanted to? Who really enjoyed aliens and read science fiction? Uh, read Joe Haldeman's Forever War because it deals with the whole transit time, and it's the basis of the book. Um, you know, they're they have to go into these similar to like the sleep chambers on the Sulaku, but they're actually like uh, inertial chambers that keep them from dying when the ship's accelerating at like twenty Gs or something like that. And oh, it's, I think it's much more than that. I mean, it has to be the way they talk about, you know. The speeds they reach. I mean, the Gs and they must have to pull. They enormous. go out to some planet for a firefight on a planet. And <laughs> they get back. And by the time they get back, things on Earth have, what, it's like 80, 90 years that they've advanced, you know? And uh, he's wandering around, like, um, just completely disoriented and can't fit in. And he says, well, I guess I'll ship out again. And so I think the novel lasts over like two or three thousand years of him shipping out and coming back and shipping out, and like the battles are just really short, and uh, he never knows who the enemy is, and it's just a terrific. I mean, the, only, the only other movie that really addresses this—I mean, the only other book that I know that really addresses this issue—and there's probably a lot of others—is Lem's Return from the Stars. Oh, that's a great novel too. It addresses yeah, this as yeah. well. 
Well, and I guess, you know, the thing about like the Forever Wars is you can make such a, a rich sci-fi universe by using – by restra- being restrained by the laws of physics uh, that you don't need to, you know, go the Star Trek route of, of stellar physics and find all these ways to make uh, the universe more like um, – I don't know, like sailing across an ocean on Earth. You know, you can you can use all that stuff to your advantage to make just a really weird, crazy set of rules and really enhance a story like Joe Haldeman did. So anyway. Well, you know, in a way, if you're going to do the bullshit route where you're just going to film on a stage with Earth's gravity and you're going to travel huge interstellar distances with no time dilation... I prefer how this movie does it. It just doesn't talk about it. Yeah, it doesn't. It, it, it doesn't just, try to explain yeah. it away. It just happens. And who knows how it happened? Who cares? And if anything, it's better than that Star Trek hyperspace Cochrane field bullshit. I know. I, maybe there's just a part of me that wants a little bit of the bullshit fed to me and why they can skip the rules. But I, I just, I don't know. I, that's that's my only complaint. That was one of my only complaints. It was just like, oh, you know, it's, it's sort of, we're... I don't know. I, anyway, personal beef, but uh, I, I forgive aliens this for quite a few reasons. And uh, yeah, so no, it's a good action movie, and it's got a bunch of fun characters. It is a terrific action. It's probably one of the best. Um, it's probably one and of. It's my, got uh, basically the state of the art practical special effects. That yeah. I don't think they got much better than this. Yep. Yep. So, do you so, we want to uh, do Ebert now? <laughs> reviewed this movie when it came out back in 86 he gave it three and a half stars out of four which is a an excellent review on his part though he seems to spend most of his review sort of tempering those three and a half stars um he first says that he i praise its craftsmanship or do i tell you it left me feeling wrung out and unhappy (laughs) <laughs> so he's sort of talking about his feelings when he left the movie. And he goes into more detail about that in the last couple of paragraphs. Um, he talks about the xenomorphs briefly. He spent some time describing this story. I like this description of the um, xenomorphs. An alien life form that seemed to consist primarily of teeth. <laughs> more or less. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, um, lots of teeth. Two he, sets. He talks, he talks about... Uh, setting up Weaver's storyline at the beginning, that the script does not provide uh, Ripley with even a single line of regret after she learns that 57 years have passed and everyone she knew is dead. Well, they must have cut out that one scene yeah, from remember, the theatrical release. The version we saw wasn't the, wasn't the original theatrical with the uh, daughter subplot. That wasn't in here, so... Yeah, that's that's too bad. It's such a short scene. I'm not, I'm not sure why they wouldn't have left it in the theatrical. But then again, he had to cut the time. What are you going to do? Um, he says the movie, he goes on to compliment some of the actors, which I, we agreed with. And then he goes, the movie gives us just enough setup to establish the characters and explain the situation. And then the action starts. It's sort of a weird thing to point out because that setup takes almost an hour. Yeah, it takes a while. <laughs> it's not, it is just enough, but it's an hour of setup. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty interesting. Um, but he doesn't talk about the the length, so I guess he didn't. He agreed that it was it was pretty tight for a two hour movie. Well, you know, like a movie like this that, like he like he points out, is more or less an action roller coaster 
for most of its length, uh, that time just goes by so quickly that you don't sit there and go, uh, even though I, after watching this movie so many times, I, I think the claptrap at the end is a little, uh, exhaustive i think yeah, oh, the, fi- the finest the final 15 the the oh, mother all oh mother fight yeah the sulaco battle i, I think that could have didn't have to end on the ship i think there could have been you know whatever so yeah and and you know this is the the point of this movie which of this review where it's a little anachronistic uh he says um aliens is absolutely painfully and unremittingly intense for at least its last hour he says, let me see here. It's even, he does comment that it's not very plausible that uh, an alien knows how to work an elevator. Yeah. <laughs> which is well, sort of funny. The whole like intelligence with the head tilt on the mother, which uh, is figuring stuff out. She's like, going, uh, mm, I think I understand the situation here. Um, but he says he has never seen a movie that maintains such a pitch of intensity for so long. And I think this is where it really comes in, where he's viewing this movie in. 86 and with i think with digital uh editing that came around soon after this you saw the the intensity of movies get ramped up until you know you see like michael bay's stuff well yeah but sharp but the intensity of this movie is more to do there's like the countdown there's the you know this movie's uh you know they got you know there's the countdown from when the thing's gonna blow in four hours. So that gets your heart rate up. Uh, the countdown of when the aliens are going to, uh, I guess, uh, infiltrate the perimeter. You know, it's going to happen. There's a lot happen. of counting. There's a lot of counting in this movie. It reminds me of the best example of counting in film. Speed 2 cruise control. Correct. Got to keep it above 10 knots, man. Which has got the, the best countdown when they're when they're running. Oh yeah, the, the uh, LED thing. The, oh, the town. Yeah. It's a fucking terrible movie. Jesus <laughs> that Christ. Was an awful movie. Holy Anyways, crap. he says he was drained, and he's not sure if aliens is what we mean by entertainment. <laughs> but it's a superb example of filmmaking craft. Well, and that's you know that's why Cameron is sort of the he's a great technical technical director. You know he um, takes on really big technical movies and he pulls them off with like a level of perfection, you know, uh, Titanic. It's a kind of a sappy, simplistic love story. Um, but you know, technically that movie was terrific. You know, the sets were awesome. Uh, he did use some CGI in that, uh, it all worked, you know, to the level that it needed to. Uh, so that's kind of his, you know, that's his strong suit. That's where he excels. And uh, he's like an engineer. He's like a film engineer, you know. Um, plus, you know, he has some, uh, he definitely has a sense of, uh, you know, how to carry action and how to make a film, cont- you know, worth watching without going Michael Bay and just totally blowing it out of, out of, the, out of proportion and making you but really But he knows, how, he knows how to, he knows how to tell a spooky story. And this, I just, the, the claustrophobia of the Hadley's Hope, you know, colony, uh, the lighting, the darkness, um, you know, fucking HVAC, just menacing HVAC, <laughs> which is, in, you know. Enormous, uh, it, impossibly enormous uh, air ducts. You know, the thing is, is I was watching this and I was like, 
haven't we fucking figured out HVAC by, you know, are we still doing the same miserable? I, I work in a big office building, I think, or a big building. You work in a big building, like big lab too, right? So it probably has even more complicated HVAC. Well, you you got to move air. It means you need a tube. You make the lightest, squarest tube you can. You hang it from the ceiling. I That's mean, all I just, it. I can't believe how much volume is consumed in a building. Just getting air you know um like i i was walking through uh one of these old estates in england once i forget i think it was like castle howard or something one of these big you know turn of the century uh estates chateaus or whatever you call them out in the countryside and you know i was walking through it was like uh springish and the air was fine you know i didn't have any problem wasn't stuffy you know things smelled a little bit old because it was old but it didn't have like all that HVAC running through it, you know, it had a few chimneys here and there. And I was like, I just kept thinking, I was like, you know, do we need fucking HVAC like we have in modern buildings today? I mean, do we got to have that shit? Uh, uh, no, I mean, if you like smelling the BO of the guys in the cubicle no, with you, I guess not. I guess. Well, it never seems to work either because every every room I'm in is either freezing cold or too hot. <laughs> uh, you know, I was like, why can't I send a thermostat and just have it be at that temperature? Why is it some cryptic fucking control network that I have to contact facilities to adjust? And then they a week later, they adjust it, and then it just goes to the opposite, where I said it was too cold and it's too hot. And when it's too hot, it goes to too cold. I well, that's like, what you get for, uh, you know, messing with those union guys and facilities. Oh, my God. Anyway, so I was disappointed to see that in whenever this movie was supposed to play, take place, 2179 or something, that HVAC, HVAC is still as antiquated and archaic as ever. You know, They should have used their hyperspace drives just to warp fresh air in yeah. and out of your rooms. Oh, for fuck's sake. Couldn't we, can't we get past the old duct and fan thing for, you know, room ventilation? Isn't there any way to do it? I don't know. Some sort of artificial gravity current setup. And that's some big HVAC. You can get like a whole squad of Marines through it and then, you know, an army of <laughs> And boy, of it sure is sturdy, too. I've never seen a more sturdy <laughs> yeah, nobody's, hung HVAC. HVAC yeah, that's I'd right. Nobody's right like any duct. Nobody's crashing through into a cubicle, you know, like you would expect or, uh, yeah, you're able to. That's one trope like exploding barrels that we could use uh, to never see again would be just fine with me. What's that? The old crawl around the HVAC system to get from one place to another. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a heavy use in spy movies, too, because that's, you know, how you sneak into a room is through the HVAC, you know. So, all right. On that note, (laughs) uh, we don't know what's what's coming up next for our next film, do we? Uh, It's a mystery. No, we're sort of recording this in advance. So it's just going to be a surprise for everybody, I guess. I'm not uh, sure. It's going to be some great film. That's going to really blow your mind, but I don't know which one it is. Um, I see The Little Mermaid in our future. Well, you know, there is something to be said about doing a classic Disney. Never film, mind. Like Sorry, a, I mentioned it. Sorry, I mentioned it. I mean, I have, I have thought no. about that, like uh, oh, don't do that maybe to Beauty me. and the Beast or something. No, don't do that to me. Come on. Uh, come on. Something, something that we can, you know, at least has one dick or fart joke in it. Disney doesn't do that for <laughs> us. All right. <laughs> Uh, All right, until next week. Not bad for a human. <laughs>